Welcome to The Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis, L.A. and Dublin. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. Hello? Hello, can I please speak with Thomas Lynch? This is he. Is that you, Paul? It is me. What a pleasure to have you on the on this call, uh, Mr. Lynch. I'm I'm most delighted, uh, really. And thank you for being part of the the quarantine tapes. Tell me, where where do I find you at the present moment? Well, I've been um, at the south end of uh, Mullet Lake in northern Michigan, where I have a home. I've been here since the third of March, and um, with the exception of having to go downstate uh, to assist with the burial of my daughter uh, earlier this month. I've been here straight through this quarantine. And um, so northern Michigan, south of the bridge to the upper peninsula, and uh, I live alone on this lake with the dog. And uh, and that's how I've been. Well, how about you? Well, I'm, before I say about me, I'm, I'm really sorry to to hear about your daughter. Well, thank you for that condolence. I, uh, I, uh, it was not entirely outside the range of um, contingencies. She had suffered for a long time with depression and mental illness, which um, doesn't remove the, the horrid um, the pain of it. But um, I feel like in a way we're, you know, just doing a day at a time and still able to walk upright and speak in sentences. So there's that. But um, this must be so, so difficult. And in, in, a, in, a, in a sense, it, it might be good for, for our listeners to, to get a sense of what your family business has been for multiple generations. Well, we're undertakers in the, uh, in the sense that we, uh, you know, we've, my father used to say we serve the living by caring for the dead. Yeah. And of, uh, of his nine children, I think, uh, Six of us are involved in one way or another in one of the funeral homes we operate in southeastern lower Michigan. Uh, and um, I, I guess we're into the third generation now since my father returned from the war, the Second World War, and uh, went to mortuary school on the GI Bill and went to work and um, uh, married and made babies and found that the highest and best use of them when they got to a certain age was to give them a job and let them swing the door and carry flowers and drive cars and wash cars. And uh, as, as things happened, you know, we sort of followed him into um, his, his work. He was a he was a serious man who thought of his work as a calling, I suppose. And um, and I see now uh, his granddaughters and grandsons going into that line of work, and I think that the the same sense of vocation uh, has inured to them. So in that sense, we're uh, equipped uh, and uh, well able to to take care of these uh, sad offices. And and is is mortuary schools something that is still operational? Yes, if someone in the state of Michigan, every state has its own requirements, but in the state of Michigan, they require their 
licensed funeral directors. They're licensed mortuary science people to be um, to have a college education, including a year of uh, mortuary school, which is largely based on um, you know professional duties to learn how to embalm and, and to learn how to manage uh, a small business and to learn how to do accounting and that type of thing. Um, before that, most uh, most students will go through a, a fairly typical liberal arts education, and then they do their their final year or an extra year in uh, at Wayne State. University in Detroit, which is the only uh, <clears throat> mortuary school in the state. So that's where what, I went to school. What, my what, sisters. Are, what, what, are, what are the skills do you, do you feel one has to learn to do this job well? Your, your father, for instance, taught you how to show people caskets. That's one little anecdote, but there must be there must be certain skills one needs to learn. And I imagine that maybe some of those skills are even in jeopardy. They are, of course, in jeopardy because the marketplace and the contingencies of, you know, pandemics all have an impact on the mortuary infrastructure. But my father was guided by um, an organizing principle, which he sort of said, you know, if you take care of the service, the sales will take care of themselves. Mm. So he used to think of the caskets and vaults and flowers and headstones as the stuff rather than the substance. He thought of he thought of those things as kind of accessories, but he thought of the essential obligations of a good funeral as a kind of transport and a transition. Um, in my generation, I have I have gained a rule of thumb that says by getting the dead where they need to go, the living get where they need to be. So it is this uh, commingling of purposes. The dead need to get to a final disposition, uh, not because the dead have much to worry about, but because the living feel an obligation to get the dead into the ground or into the fire or into the tomb or into the sea or into whatever abyss they're going to consign them to. This seems to be sort of a, the signature uh, of a human condition that we take seriously the the corpse of our dead. And it is by dealing with our dead um, that we deal with death in the conceptual sense. So the notion, the idea, the overarching existential concern that's presented by a death in the family is handled by handling the corpse, by handling the dead themselves, not the idea of it, but the thing itself, the misquote Wallace Stevens. But um, uh, yeah, um, Since you the essential elements seem to involve the dead, the living to whom the dead matter, the story we tell one another about where they went or where they came from. The religious among us have this written out in, you know, some sort of orthodoxy. Others have poetry or music or art or, or um, as Augustine said, you know, a, a, a holy mystery. And, um, and then we have to get rid of the corpse. We have to get the body away from us because, and you can try this at home, Paul, you can live with a lot of things, but you cannot live with a dead body for very long, especially if it's warm. And, so that's what we do. Yeah, and, and you know, um, and, and it's so important in the way you write about it, um, how, we, how we deal with that moment, that liminal moment. And I was thinking of, you know, that extraordinary line of Robert Frost where he says, in three words I can sum up everything I've learned about life. It goes... And what are, 
it goes it goes on it goes on it, but, but, that, but, yeah. but 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 it goes on and in some way what you're saying we need to find a way of making it go on by paying respect in in a respectful way to those who have left us well we do have to get the sort of essential job done And, and, and I, you know, I speak of this because, you know, for 50 years, I've been sort of assisting people in the accomplishment of this sort of sad uh, task, oftentimes with, um, you know, with uh, plenty of help from their family and their religious uh, community or their civic community or their circle of friends or perfect strangers who show up to pitch in and do their part. One of the things I you know that has uh, been complicated by um, pandemic is that um, we are very limited. We, I mean, we are we we confront an, uh, a happenstance that wants that we in, intuitively want to gather together and uphold one another and assist one another with the hands-on close shoulder and shovel work. And yet, uh, you know, public medicine tells us to stay away from each other, to socially distance and to isolate and uh, remain uh, masked and and distant. And uh, that goes against the, the more primal instinct to, uh, to hug and to hold and to uphold. So where I've always known this, it's become, uh, you know, keen to me lately in the death of my daughter and the sense that once we got uh, that hard duty done, got her home, got her buried in the manner that we knew would suit her, um, there was a great sense of get, having a toe, maybe maybe even a foot in the door of a future uh, that we didn't feel during the during the pendency of all that. I think I, I, I'm sure you'll know what I'm talking about I, here. I, but I, I do, and I do, and, and and you express this in a way that is 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 deeply moving to me when you say good grief is sort of a romance in reverse. Yeah, it is. It does. It does feel like. It does feel that kind of gravity and the hope that you can somehow have an impact on a future that you are not entirely sure of. And uh, so, yeah, it's uh, I do feel like um, it is a romance in reverse, a kind of a knowing when to let go and when to hold on and, uh, you know, how to be still and be silent before the mystery of it. You know, it's um, yeah. You, you mentioned and, and forgive me for bringing up your daughter again, but you you. You, you mentioned that you you gave her a funeral that was suited to to her. Um, th that's such an extraordinary statement. It would mean that we would in some way know what kind of um, funeral well, we need to. to my daughter uh, grew up in a family of funeral directors, right? And and, and um, she worked for us and with us at the funeral home for four or five years between her, uh, I'd say her true calling um, as sort of a, she worked for a lot of nonprofits. She worked for the Equal Rights Campaign in Washington. She was, she had a master's degree in uh, feminist art history. I, she worked a long time for the American Friends Service Committee. She had you know, serious concerns about social justice and the, and the minority communities, uh, both racially and gender wise. And, um, as she was a, she was a very fine human, even though she was beset by, by illnesses. And, um, you know, it was very difficult. 
And, um, but I, uh, she did keep track of what she won when she was working at the funeral home. She made herself a file, leaving pretty good instructions about, you know, what to do in the event of her death, because I think she knew uh, perhaps more, uh, more keenly other women her age did that, uh, we are mortal and the numbers are really convincing on this, you know, like a hundred percent. So she... She did keep a file, and she did write down that in the event of her death, she would want, you know, an organic funeral, she called it. I think she meant what we now call a green funeral, but it's basically the funeral that was held up until, you know, maybe the the early part of the 20th century, or actually it was until the middle of the 19th century when we started to die away from home and embalm bodies and, um, you know, the marketplace uh, nudged its way forward and uh, eventually became, as Mitford wrote, uh, not so much an existential event, but a retail event. And uh, and she wrote eloquently and humorously about that. I think she was wrong about a lot of things, at least in my experience. But um, about about the fact that we get stuck on the knickknacks and accessories rather than the essential elements of a funeral, she was uh, dead right. You know, she really was right. We get stuck on the boxes and the brouhaha instead of the... Um, the, the bodies of our dead and the, and the getting them where they need to go, you know? Do you feel like society is, is confronting death in a different way because of this pandemic, because of this virus, perhaps uh, nearly an impossibility for certain rituals to take, uh, to take place? And added to that, uh, uh, Thomas Lynch, one, one, one of the, uh, the concerns I have is, with with this removal as you were talking about you know leaving leaving one's loved ones uh, sometimes virtually with a with an ipad um i'm yeah. i am really wondering quite uh, in a, in a, i'm wondering and worried about the lasting uh, traumatic effects this will have on those who live on well you you are i think correct uh, to be worried and wary of what we're going to do with this COVID generation. Um, COVID-19 has overwhelmed certainly our medical infrastructure. Um, it's overwhelmed our uh, economic and civic infrastructure. Uh, the fact that we have an ignoramus in charge is just um, Not I, uh, payback for having voted our, our worst appetites rather than our better angels in 2016. But there it is. The 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 richest and 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 uh, mo- you know the wealthiest country in the world is at wit's end. Uh, uh, you know we we we're stuck. I mean, actually, the Mexicans are, will probably end up building a wall to keep us out because of our the mismanagement of this pandemic. But I do think the, a real concern should be with the fact that the dead are dying more alone than they. They ever have in modern times that the people who are who survive a death, those who mourn and grieve, are doing so uh, limited uh, to usually the pallbearers, the clergy, the immediate family, and they go to the uh, cemetery or the crematory or the mausoleum. But the, I mean, the, the the math of bereavement is fairly straightforward, Paul, yeah. and it's a little it's a little bit like the more the merrier. The more people who are willing to shoulder their portion of the the community's grief, the easier it is for each of us. 
And when we're limited in, you know, what we can do with and for and to, the um, the more difficult. So I, I would expect there would be a generation of, uh, of, of bereaved people who yeah. are are wrecked in a way that their parents and grandparents weren't. You know, I always I always think of, of Freud's extraordinary essay on grief and mourning, and he correctly says the work of mourning. The work, yes. The work. Grief, he called it, yeah. Or maybe that was Erickson. I'm not sure, but my father used to say, uh, and he was no Freudian, he was a combat Marine, but he would say, uh, it's going to have its way with you. You can pay the bartender, you can pay the shrink, or you can pay the funeral director, but grief will have its way with you. And the trouble is, of course, now the pubs are closed, the funeral homes are sites of wariness and contagion. And um, and I don't know, I, I, think, I think even the therapists are having to think again about this. Um, it has brought us all to a place we've never been before. Well, we were a hundred and some years ago, but oddly enough, if it weren't for the Spanish flu, my father never would have been a funeral director, but his his uncle, who was a priest, uh, died of the Spanish, or he had the Spanish flu, survived it, and then later died of pneumonia uh, two years into his priesthood. And seeing that, that man's body placed in a coffin in Jackson, Michigan, was what made, and my father was 12 at the time, but that's when he just that's funeral what, director. That's what triggered it you've you've yeah. written, you've written about the ways in which consumer culture has affected the, the mourning process as we discussed it a little bit how can we reclaim the experience of loss what a what a sensible question well that, because what what consumer culture has told us is as with love and marriage and birth and baptism, uh, that um, that we can uh, insert a retail event, a shopping experience, uh, wherever it begins to get a little uh, difficult, as it does with a death in the family. So I would say to people, anything that you can do to actually confront what's going on. Um, you know, I, I, I often say, I said after my daughter's funeral, I wonder what people do who aren't there, who don't have a funeral home. You know, uh, her younger brother, there had to go into the funeral home at midnight to play his own music to her, to sing to her in the dark. Really? And um, I found it um, a real comfort to me of a sort that um, it would take a long time to explain yeah. to be with her uh, brother um, to lift her into the little wicker basket that we used as her coffin. And, um, you know, to lift her into that and to have and to ask her female cousins to carry her to the grave and to have them shovel the dirt in. We, you know, we close the grave ourselves with shoulder work and shovel work, not by a backhoe or anything like that. And, and uh, the necessary work of grief that Freud talked about oftentimes involves large muscles, the heart. <laughs> right. Right. You know, yeah. So, um, I'm wondering, uh, uh, Thomas Lynch, that what effect um, does this kind of profession have on you? And are there moments in your own life of half a decade of 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 doing this that you feel that it's just too much, or moments where you yourself have um, felt perhaps overwhelmed? By your vocation. Yeah, well, it's a half a century now. I know. And I remember saying to the, the sexton of the cemetery as I was leaving my daughter's grave, I think this might be my last funeral for a while. 
And at my age, of course, I'm, I've outlived my father and my grandfathers, my mother and uh, not my grandmother's, thanks be. But, um, you know, I just think um, there are, I, I felt definitely overwhelmed by the, I think the Latin for it is lacrimae rerum, the tears of things. Mm. I can't say it any other way than that, that I, just the tears of things felt uh, overwhelming. Poetry was uh, and remains the the closest thing to prayer that I know. And um, I haven't found a religious orthodoxy, though I was raised as an Irish Catholic. And, you know, I, I my breath still catches at certain hymns. I, uh, you know, I'm, I've spent most of my life um, questioning and shaking a fist in the face of a God that I have only a provisional faith in, you know, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, some weeks. Right. Not so much on Tuesday, Thursdays, and Saturdays. But uh, who's to know? I can't remember what day we're speaking on. Uh, that's part of the, the, the effect of, of the pandemic is that we no longer know what day of the week is. Simon Critchley, a philosopher who I spoke to earlier on, described this moment of the pandemic as a philosophical moment precisely because we are all being confronted with our own mortality. Would you? He's right about that. And the m mortality in the most primal sense, we are literally running out of breath, you know? And one of the things that has occurred to me, Paul, and you could run this by your philosopher friends, I think, I think whomever God turns out to be, my guess is it might be closer to Mother Nature than to Father God. And I think she's pissed because, uh, you know, um, it seems that nature is, um, is bedeviling us between, you know, climate change and COVID and the rest of the what seemed to be nature's distempers seemed, to me anyway, uniquely uh, motherly. You, you, you were mentioning before poetry, and I, I must tell our listeners that you're a very fine poet, uh, and not only, if one can say so, an undertaker. You've also written a book which over the years has mattered to me greatly, uh, called The Undertaking, Life Studies from the Dismal Trade. And um, I was wondering, does poetry offer you solace? And maybe in closing, you could even leave us with a poem. I will. Um, this is a poem that has meant a lot to me in the, in the last few weeks more than ever before. I wrote it, I think, 10 or 20 years ago when a boy in Ireland um, who had been abused by a priest and only wanted an apology from the priest to affirm that he was not himself crazy. He mm. wanted the priest to affirm that this had been done. I think the church gave the boy, and when I say boy, he was a, a, a man of, of maybe 30 or 40. Uh, they gave him a million euros in settlement, but they never did apologize. And um, he, he, he jumped from a great and um, some years ago, I made up a character who was a sin eater. And of course, in Orthodox Christian thought, uh, suicide was the sin that could not be forgiven. I think that's nonsense. Either it's forgiven or none are forgiven. And uh, anyway, this poem is called, He Posits Certain Mysteries. And it has to do with this difference of opinion I have with what used to be the stated notion of what's to be done with suicides. My daughter took her own life, God help us. And um, and I just couldn't I just couldn't abide the thought of that without without thinking that she saw somewhere in that um, the beckoning arms of 
a new being to uh, leap into. He posits certain mysteries. The body of the boy who took his flight off the cliff at Gilcloher into the sea was hauled up by Curric men out at first light fishing mackerel in the estuary. No requiem or rosary, said the priest, nor consecrated ground for burial, as if the boy had flown outside the pale of mercy or redemption or God's love. Forgive them, for they know not what they do, quote Argyle to the corpse's people, who heard in what he said a sort of riddle, as if he meant their co-religionists and not their sodden, sadly broken boy. Either way, they took some comfort in it and readied better than accustomed fare of food and spirits by their own reckoning, the greater sin, the greater soul of the toll. But Argyle refused their shilling coins and helped them build a box and dig a grave. Your boy's no profligate or prodigal, he said. Only a wounded pilgrim like us all. Let's say his leaping was a leap of faith into his father's beckoning embrace. They killed no fatted calf. They filled the hole. There you go. There I go. Thomas Lynch, it's been a real pleasure and privilege to speak with you. Um, uh, it's been a privilege talking to you, Paul. We'll both get over that in the fullness of time. I'm sure of it. <laughs> in the fullness of time. Yeah. You know, my mother always said, um, living is dangerous uh, and the outcome is always fatal. Yes, she was right about that. Yeah, and that thing that Frost said, I'm glad you reminded me about life goes on. That's the good news and the bad news. Right, you know? right. <laughs> Right, and all with a great ball. And he also he also said that the best way out is always through. And, yeah, and we must we must go through. And I think I feel, yeah. I feel so deeply now for all the people who are losing people to this virus and who can't go through it at this moment and the trauma yeah. and the trauma that will come later. Um, yeah, we'll have a fleet of walking wounded, so we must be better to one another. We must be better equipped and kinder. I'm, yeah. I'm really grateful. Thank you so much, and take good care. Thank you so much, Paul. All the best. All the best to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. To support this show and Dublab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com slash support.